Okay, Matthew 16, we'll be looking at uh, just verses 18 through 20 today. Matthew 16, verses 18 through 20. Last week we saw that the disciples had uh, went to Caesarea Philippi. And you can see in the map here on the screen that Caesarea Philippi was north of the Sea of Galilee. It was higher elevation. It was a cooler place. It was kind of like a, a country resort place. But sadly, it was also a very pagan, uh, idolatrous place. And so as the disciples were walking around that region there near Caesarea Philippi, they were wondering why Jesus refused to overthrow Rome and Caesar and the Roman Empire. And they were wondering why he was refusing to establish his own earthly kingdom. Despite Jesus' obvious supernatural powers, despite his claims of being divine, being deity, despite his claims to having God's authority, he was less influential and respected among the people now than when he was when he first started his earthly ministry way way back in what uh, Matthew chapters three and four. And instead of being the conquering king's assistants, which they had hoped to become, the twelve were just still this little band of nobodies. They were nobodies. They were nothing. And so they were beginning to share in Jesus' rejection. They were experiencing the uncomfortable experience of, of being opposed, particularly by the religious leaders from Jerusalem. So in Matthew 16, Jesus is with his disciples, with the twelve there, and he's assuring the twelve that his program is on schedule. Uh, they probably were feeling like, is there even a program? And if there is a program, it's, it's obviously been diverted. It's way off track. And so Jesus is assuring them, no, it's not off track. The program is on schedule. I am in control. And, they, and you, you guys, you 12, you have every reason to continue your trust in me. That's what Jesus is trying to assure the disciples of. Well, the problem was, <laughs> on the surface, on the surface, it, it didn't appear... Uh, like God was in control. It didn't appear that this, this program, this earthly kingdom, so to speak, was, was, was going anywhere. The problem was what they saw on the surface didn't reflect the reality of what God was actually doing. And so Jesus now sought to convince the twelve that they had no reason to doubt or despair. You ever been in that situation? Where you feel like somehow, you, you, you know what I'm talking about? Where you feel, you, you, you wonder, there's this twin, at least a twinge of doubt in your mind where you think, you know, I wonder if God forgot to sat on his throne today. I wonder if God's having a bad day today. I wonder, is God really sovereign? You, you know, you, you give lip service to God's sovereignty. You give lip service that God reigns supreme over his creation. And then something bad happens and you're wondering, well, do I really believe what I believe? I can't help but wonder if that's what the disciples were going through. <laughs> because Jesus takes them away from all the opposition and the rejection. He, he gets off up in this area of Caesarea Philippi, quite a ways away from the Sea of Galilee. 
and he wants to encourage them. Here the Lord gives a message of great hope to those who are rejected, to those who are the persecuted people of God. And by the way, not just for the twelve, this is a word of comfort and encouragement for God's people of all ages. In the end, there is a glorious purpose and victory. Why? Because God's people belong to the eternal church that Jesus Christ is building. Jesus Christ is building His church. The King. The King of Kings is building His church. That is probably the theme, the the main idea of this passage. So as we come to Matthew 16, verses 18 through 20, we're going to see seven characteristics of the church that the king is building. Seven characteristics of the church that the king is building. Number one, we see in verse 18 that Jesus is the foundation of the church. Look at verse 18. Matthew 16, verse 18. The first part says this, And I, that's Jesus, tell you, these disciples, you are Peter... And on this rock, I will build my church. Let's just stop there for a moment. Jesus clearly says he is, well, maybe not so clearly, because there's many different views on this, actually. But I'm, I'm here to persuade you, if you don't believe this already, that Jesus is the foundation of the church. Now, in case you don't know this, there's a lot of different views on this this particular passage, one of those views being, who is this rock? What is this rock? I mean, Jesus just says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, if you're not careful, you can come up with all sorts of ideas. And and, and as I was doing some reading on this, I even found evangelicals disagreeing on who or what is this rock. So let me just give you some of these views, and we'll talk about them, Okay. The, the first one is, uh, being that the rock is Peter. And if you don't believe that and wonder how people come to that conclusion, well, you have to j- just look at the context and you might understand how people come to that because, because Jesus is talking to Peter. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And so they just assume that Peter is the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Let's talk about that for a moment, because for more than 1,500 years now, Roman Catholicism has maintained that this this passage here in Matthew 16 teaches that the church was built on the person of Peter. And And then, you might know this, that Peter ends up becoming the first pope, and then he was the first bishop of Rome, and then from from Peter you get the Catholic papacy, And so all the popes end up descending from Peter, who was the first pope and the first bishop of Rome. You've heard that theory before? Well, a lot of that idea comes from this passage. Now, I'm going to tell you why I firmly believe that I don't think that view is right. Um, But let's just proceed. But anyway, because of this particular belief in apostolic secession, and and that's where the popes come all the way down the line from Peter... Anyway, the, the Pope's considered to be the supreme and authoritative representative of Christ on earth. He often, the Pope's become, they, they, they call him the vicar of Christ. And so when a Pope speaks in his official capacity as head of the church, he is said to speak with divine authority that is, 
that is equal to that of God in the Scripture. So those of us who are Protestants, and, and we've always been Protestants, we have a hard time understanding, how can somebody actually believe that an earthly man like some pope can actually have equal authority or even greater authority than Scripture itself? You might have a hard time with that. Well, it, it's, it's to do with that apostolic succession coming from Peter himself. Well, such an interpretation, I firmly believe, is unbiblical uh, for many reasons. Number one, the Bible says that Christ alone is the foundation and the only head of the church. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, coming up in a few minutes. But there, there's also some other views on this passage of who or what is this rock. The second one is uh, popular with some evangelicals and Protestants. And the view is this, that the rock is Peter's confession, which we studied last week. Uh, that confession being that, uh, you remember in, in verse 16, Peter replied, he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So some take the rock being Peter's confession, acknowledging that Christ is the Messiah. He is God in human flesh. Well, there's several ways that people have come to that conclusion. Part of the, the way they come to that conclusion is, is as a result of studying the Greek language, which your New Testament is based on. It's an interesting play of words here. The, the word Peter, the, the English uh the Greek word for the English word Peter is Petros, which means small stone. <laughs> so, so Jesus is calling Peter a small stone. And the word rock there is the Greek word Petra. You can see they're very similar. Petros, Peter, Petra, rock. So there's a bit of a play on words, and, and that refers to a big rocky mountain. So Peter's the small stone. The rock is, is big. Think Think of some huge mountain, all right? Big difference there. So, therefore, perhaps uh, the most popular interpretation is that Jesus was comparing Peter, a a small stone, to the great mountainous rock on which he was going to build his church, that being Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So some people believe the rock is Peter's confession, just just so you know that. Uh, that particular interpretation, by the way, is, is somewhat faithful to the original language of Scripture, and it certainly does have much to commend it. But it seems more likely that was not Jesus' point, and, and i got several reasons for thinking this. Uh, the context and other, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, and, and a few other reasons, which we'll get to in a moment. But when, when you compare Scripture with Scripture, for example, you get a totally different picture than, than either Peter being the rock or his confession. For example, all right, in Ephesians, Paul says this. I think I put it up here on the screen for you. that Paul says that God's household is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, that's in Ephesians chapter 2, which clearly says Jesus is the foundation, he's, uh, well, he, it's built. His household, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone, the most important part of that. 
Also, when you take other portions of Scripture, let's take the Gospels, for example. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Peter is the leading apostle, right? He's the one who is often the, the spokesman for, for all of the twelve apostles. Uh, that's the way it was during Jesus' earthly ministry. And even, even going into the book of Acts, when Jesus ascends to heaven, Peter continues to be kind of that leading apostle. You know, he's the one who preaches that great sermon in, in Acts chapter 2, for example. And he's the one who goes out to the Gentiles, that Christ leads to the Gentiles, for example. He was the chief preacher and leader in those early years of the church. And so it seems in the present passage that Jesus addressed Peter as not just Peter, but he he's addressing Peter because he's the representative of a bigger group, the twelve. So for that reason and others, I, I don't think it's Peter's confession that that is the rock. I, I believe that the rock is Jesus Christ. That's the third main view here. So whether one interprets Matthew 16, verse 18, as referring to Peter as a small stone placed on a mountain, being his confession that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, or, or if you uh, are referring to his, his being one with the rest of the twelve in his confession, it, it doesn't really matter because the basic truth is the same. doesn't really change the bottom line, so to speak. The foundation of the church is the revelation of God given through his apostles. And who's the Lord of the church? Jesus Christ. And and so as as the Lord of the church, he's the cornerstone of that foundation. And so because it is his word that the the, the apostles taught, then Jesus Christ is the true foundation. Because they, they had no authority of their own, did they? The only authority they had was given to them by Christ. So he's, he, Christ is the living word to whom the written word is bearing witness. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, verse 3, he says, No man, and by the way, no man includes the apostles, no man, including the apostles, can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's only one foundation, Jesus Christ. And, and notice, <laughs> this is written by an apostle. Uh, this is someone who knew Peter. And so he's acknowledging it's not Peter who's the foundation of the church. He's acknowledging it's Christ who is the head of the church. The Lord builds the church, and it, it, what is it built on? It's built on the truth of himself. The apostles proclaim that truth. And that's why they're a part of that. That building, if you will. Well, there is one thing that's certainly clear, hopefully to you, that the Lord did not establish his church on the supremacy of Peter. Peter, I don't think, is the rock. I don't think he is the supposed, you know, there's these supposed papal successors coming from Peter who have great authority. Uh, It's interesting that just just a little bit later in in the book of Matthew, uh, the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? This is in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, and I'm using this as an example so you understand even how the apostles themselves looked at Peter. What, what did they believe about Peter? Did they see Peter as, as the rock, as the foundation of the church? Well, obviously not. 
even in Matthew 18, they asked, who was the greatest in, in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus replies by bringing a little child to himself, and he says, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Basically, Jesus is saying, hey, we're equal, <laughs> right? Had the twelve, by the way, understood Jesus' teaching about the rock as referring exclusively to Peter? Why would they ask a question like this if that was the case? They, they wouldn't ask that question if they thought Peter was the rock. And the reason they didn't ask the question is because the apostles didn't believe that Jesus or Peter was the rock. They knew he wasn't. And by the way, the reality is Peter never claimed any superior title for himself. Uh, he never claimed some, some great rank or privilege, uh, any different from the other apostles. And if you don't believe me, just read Peter's epistles. Okay? Read 1 Peter and 2 Peter. For example, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter just calls himself a fellow elder. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he calls himself a bond servant of Christ. He didn't see himself as above the other apostles. He was just equal amongst them. Well, I think probably the greatest argument is actually coming from Peter's own testimony himself. You can read it here on the screen, coming from 1 Peter chapter 2. So let me ask you this. How did Peter understand Jesus' words? And by those words, I mean this rock upon which he was building his church. How did Peter understand that? Did Peter see himself as the rock? Did Peter see his confession, even, as the rock? Well, look at Peter's confession here. I've I've underlined a few key words here. You can see the stone and the rock uh, is clearly referring to Christ. Here's what 1 Peter 2, verse 4 says. As you come to him, a living stone, that's Christ, the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. <laughs> Did you notice Peter's testimony there? There is, there is no suggestion at all that he is the rock. In fact, Peter is insisting that Christ is the foundation stone of the church. Okay? Clear. Clear is whatever you want to come up with. All right, so first characteristic of the church is that Jesus is the foundation. Number two, we see here that the church is certain. The church is certain. And that comes from verse 18. Jesus himself says, I will build my church. You see that there in verse 18? Because Jesus is the Son of God, and of course God cannot lie, God cannot be mistaken, God doesn't make mistakes. 
therefore, the church will be built. It is the divine promise of the divine Savior that his church will be built. He says it, so we must believe it. It's interesting, uh, those words there in verse 18, I will build. Did you notice the tense of the verb? What's the tense of the verb? It's will. Will is future tense. So our, our English standard version is translating accurately because in the Greek it's in the future tense. And by the way, Jesus, when he uses the future tense, he's not saying as, as I've heard some people say that he had not built his church in the past. Okay, please don't head down that road because I've heard people say that, you know, all the people before Christ went to hell. Whoa, <laughs> that is not true. Okay, all right. Uh, all those people in the Old Testament, for example, you know, you're going to see people like Moses and Daniel so forth in heaven. How did they get to heaven? They get to heaven the same way you do, by faith in Christ, by God's grace. It's, it's the same. The, the only difference is they look forward to the cross, whereas we're looking back to the cross. Okay, So please don't head down that road, because some have taken the future tense there to say, whoa, oh. And, you know, say he's not, he, he, he didn't build his church in the past. Well, you become part of the church by being a believer in Christ. And so the idea is that he would continue to build his church. That's the idea. It's a continuous thing. It, it, just as he had been doing all the way back to Adam. The word church here is used in a general sense. It's used in a non-technical sense. Interestingly enough, it's, this is the first place it's mentioned in your New Testament, the word church, ekklesia is the Greek word, first mention of it. So let me just give you a hermeneutical principle. Those of you who aren't in my hermeneutics class uh, may not have heard this before, so let me be clear, okay? Sometimes a word progresses in, in its meaning and understanding. There is something called progressive revelation that is happening in Scripture, Okay? Our understanding of the word church is different, very different from those in the Old Testament. <laughs> uh, and it's even different from those living at Jesus' time. Okay, and, and even the Apostle Paul called the church a mystery. Right? You read about that in places like Ephesians. The church was called a mystery. Why? It's not because someone was killed. <laughs> That's not the point. Mystery is just something that was previously unknown it's, it's, and something that was progressively being revealed. And, and so as you read your New Testament, you get to understand the concept of the church more fully as you read along, even more fully than even someone like Peter did. Okay, So please don't read your understanding into the text here. That, that, is, that is wrong to do that. Okay, They had a different understanding of that, that word ekklesia, the Greek word for church. Okay? It, uh, it does not indicate the distinct body of believers that, that started at the day of Pentecost. Okay. By the way, I have heard people say, this is when the church started. No, it didn't. The church started with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells believers. That, it's crucial to understand that theology. Okay. That didn't happen until Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter, you know, in the book of Acts, right? Coming at Pentecost. All right, that was the beginning of the church. All right, this is not the beginning of the church. And so Jesus was not emphasizing the time of his building, 
but he's emphasizing that the building is certain. I will do this. I'm going to continue doing this until I'm done and I'm ready to come back. I'm going to keep building my church. So no matter how liberal its outward supporters may be, no matter how corrupt the world may become, here's the good news, that Christ will build his church. Let me just give you some application to think about that's very encouraging here. Number one, God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. Okay, this is one of the truths you need to walk away with today. Okay, if you're if you're a Christian, you're part of God's family, His people, and that makes you a part of a cause that cannot fail. Wow, that's awesome! I, I love that truth. It's a beautiful thought that no matter how oppressive and how hopeless our circumstances may appear, God's program will never fail. Never fail. Yes. The church is under attack from within and without, but it will not fail. Number two, no one in Christ's church should have the desire to build it himself. <laughs> that is no one's prerogative. Christ declared that he alone builds a church, and it doesn't matter how good your intentions may be. You know, It doesn't matter how sincere you are. If you attempt to build his church, you know what you're actually doing? you are actually competing against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You are competing against the King of Kings. He's building his church. You don't want to compete against him. All right? So by human reason, persuasiveness, diligence, it's possible to win converts to an organization or a cause or personality, but it is totally impossible to win a convert to the spiritual church, to the church of Jesus Christ. That cannot be done apart from God's Word and God's Holy Spirit working in someone's life. You can't do that. Right? So human effort can produce only human results. God alone can produce spiritual results. So if you walk in the Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit, you can be sure that you are living where Christ is building His church. You get to be a part of it, but... You're not the one doing the building. It, it's the Lord who adds to His church, X says. And so Christ is building His church, and He's doing it through faithful believers. So, wherever His people are committed to His kingdom and His righteousness, the Lord's building His church there, all around the world. God, God is ministering in people's hearts. And so if believers in one place become cold or disobedient, you know what Christ does? He stops building a lot of times. He snuffs out that light just as he did to at least one of the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He'll snuff out that light. The construction work ends and he'll, he'll pick up his construction work somewhere else. The reality is, those of you, some of us are builders. You might appreciate this, this analogy. Christ is building his church. It's always under construction. <laughs> He's not done yet. Until he comes, he's going to continue to build his church. In fact, Jesus said in John 6, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. At Pentecost, Peter declared that Christ builds into his church as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And then in Acts 2.47, 
it was not the apostles, but the Lord himself that was, that was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So who's doing the work there? It's the Lord, Jesus Christ, who's adding to his church. And he's still doing that today. So Christ uses the faithful work of those who belong to him, but only he is building his church. Are we clear on that? Okay. He will use you. You get to be a part of that. What a privilege that is. And you get rewarded for being a part of that. But you're not the one actually doing the building. Christ is. Now I want you to listen to what Ephesians says about the church that he loves. Chapter 5 says this. He gave himself up. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he, that's Christ, might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. He has a purpose in what he's doing, and he's accomplishing that purpose. Men are able to build earthly things, physical organizations, but only Christ can build the eternal spiritual church. Which is one reason why we shouldn't call the church a building, right? Or an organization. It's a spiritual entity. All right, the third characteristic is that the church is an intimate fellowship of believers belonging to Christ. If you're a believer, you belong to Christ. You're a part of the church. Notice in verse 18, Christ says, whose church is it? He says, it is my church. My church, Jesus says in verse 18. So what does that make Christ then? Let's just think about this. It, it makes Christ, if we want to use earthly terms here, it makes Christ the architect. It makes Christ the builder. It makes Christ the owner. <laughs> it also makes him Lord of the church. He's all of those things. Jesus Christ assures his followers that they are his personal possession. Because you are his church. You belong to him if, if you've been saved. The Bible also says in Acts 20 that they are his body purchased with his own blood. That's how you become part of the church. Uh, the Bible also says that uh, if you're a believer, you are one with him in a holy intimacy. Christ, by the way, according to Hebrews 2, Christ is not ashamed to call believers brethren. Wow, what a special term. What a, what a wonderful relationship. We, we, get, we get called brethren. We have this spiritual, everlasting family. Anyway, Hebrews 11 says that God is not ashamed to, call, uh, to be called their God. If you're a believer, God's, God's adopted you into his family, and he's not ashamed of that, D despite the fact that you and I are still sinners. He didn't adopt you because you're wonderful. <laughs> or or he, he's not going to get rich off us. He didn't do that because of any of those reasons. So when Jesus confronted Paul, who was called Saul, if you've ever read Acts chapter 9, Saul, at that time, who was on the road to, to Damascus, remember he was going there to persecute the Christians. Interestingly enough, uh, when Jesus confronted 
this man Saul who became Paul, he asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the Christians? Right? Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. If you've ever read Acts 9, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Wait a minute. I thought he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. Does Jesus not understand what's going on there? Of course he does. He knows all things. But he says he's on his way to persecute the Christians. In reality, Saul was persecuting Jesus. You see that relationship. It's a wonderful relationship. So by persecuting Christians, Saul had been persecuting Christ. There's a oneness there. We belong to him. The fourth characteristic of the church is that the church is a continuous community. The church is a continuous community. Again, look at verse 18. Uh, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That word church there is, is emphasizing the identity and the, the continuity. The, something, it's, it's something that's going to continue. It's a group of people that will continue. It's a community. The word church, ecclesia is the Greek word, literally means the called out ones. The called out ones. It was used as a general and a non-technical term. It, it just referred to a, uh, an official assembled group of people. So schools probably every week, you know, around New Zealand, they have assemblies, right? You could say those assemblies are ecclesias. Whenever a group of people gets together, an officially assembled group of people, whatever those are, that's an ecclesia. Okay? That's the non-technical term that Jesus is using here. It was used of uh, 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 elsewhere in, in Greek writings. It was used of public gatherings, uh, maybe when they would have a town meeting in the town square or at the city gate or whatever. That was called an ecclesia. And that's the word Jesus is using here. Matthew 16, 18 here contains the, the first use of the Greek word ekklesia. Uh, but Jesus doesn't give an explanation of, of this. And even, even well after Jesus is off the earth, people still didn't understand this term church. It was a mystery. The apostles could not have understood it in, in any other way, so we need to be careful that we we don't read our modern-day understanding of the church into this text. That would be wrong to do that. The epistles use the term in a more distinct and specialized way. They actually give instructions for the function, for the leadership, for, for even our behavior in the household of God. All right? But remember, those epistles weren't written yet. Okay, Those are coming later. So please don't read your understanding into this text. We need to try to get what, what were the apostles' understanding of ecclesia at this time. So here's Jesus and the apostles at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus' use of ecclesia could only have carried the idea of assembly or community or congregation. And it wasn't until after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, that that term ecclesia or church took on a new and, and uh, very significant reference. It took on the idea of something that was distinct. It's a group of people that were redeemed, a distinct, redeemed community built on the work of Christ by the Holy Spirit's coming. So it seems here, if you were 
to compare the word church in other settings, for example, it seems that the sense in which Christ uses church, he's using it as a synonym for citizens of his eternal kingdom. So that's the way we, I think we need to think of it. The Lord does not build his kingdom apart from his church or his church apart from his kingdom. So the church is something that's continuous. It's a community. It's, it's a group of people, if you will. Think of it that way. Number five, the fifth characteristic of the church is that it is invincible. We just read in, in verse 18 that the, these, these gates of hell, which is your Greek word, Hades, Hades is not going to overpower. It's not going to overcome. Interestingly enough, there's, again, there's some strange, well, I think there's strange views anyway on this. Uh, the, the gates of Hades, I'm going to use the word Hades because uh, I don't think hell is, is the best translation we could use. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Uh, some of your Bible translations probably say Hades. But the gates of Hades has often been interpreted as representing the evil forces of Satan attacking the church. You ever heard that? Just think about this for a moment. <clears throat> All right, If that's the case, uh, the analogy doesn't really work in my mind. Ha- have you ever seen gates attacking anything? Have you? I mean, that's a funny thought, isn't it? Have you ever seen gates go out and attack an army or another city or anything? H- have you seen that happen? Because I haven't. I haven't even seen that in fiction writing. Uh, the, the analogy doesn't work, and I think it do- doesn't work for a reason. The gates are not instruments of warfare. Gates are not meant to attack anything, right? What, what's the purpose of gates? Gates keep the enemy out. <laughs> or if you're in a prison, <laughs> if you're in a prison, the gates or bars or whatever keep people in. That's the purpose of gates. So just keep that picture in mind as we try to understand what is Jesus talking about here by the gates of Hades are not going to overpower the church. So their purpose is not to conquer. purpose is to protect those who are behind them, to protect them from being conquered by an enemy, or to keep people in, keep bad people in to keep them from escaping, right? That's the purpose of gates. So Hades, uh, in the Bible, refers to the abode of the dead. Uh, it, was, it was never meant to refer to hell, as it is sometimes rendered in some Bible translations. So when the terms Gates and Hades are properly understood, it becomes clear that Jesus is declaring here something very, very important about the church. What is he trying to talk about? He's he's saying that death has no power to hold God's redeemed people captive. Death has no longer power over his people anymore. Its gates are not strong enough to overpower and imprison the church of God. Why is that? Well, the Lord's conquered sin and death. When Christ died on the cross, He didn't just deal with the penalty of sin, He dealt with the power of sin, as well as the presence of sin. Now, you may not be, you're not feeling the pre, well, you will feel the presence of sin now. But when you're glorified, He's gonna deal with the presence of sin, the curse of sin's gonna be gone. Death itself will be no more. There will only be eternal life and eternal death. But even in eternal death, the person's still alive. So Jesus said in John 14 this, He said, Because I live, you shall live also. 
Now we see today that Satan has the power of death. He's been given that by God himself. And he's continually using that power to try to destroy Christ's church. But who has ultimate authority? Who has ultimate victory? It's Christ. And in fact, uh, Satan's power of death is is so certain in Scripture that there's a passage I want to show you. It, it actually uses a past tense verb, showing it's it's something that's in the past. Look at this, Hebrews 2. It says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Amen. We can shout hallelujah to that because, yes, Satan has the power of death. But notice it's past tense. It's something that is so sure, so certain, that it's, it, it's, it's already done. It's, it's accomplished. And so it's that great truth of which Peter spoke at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter says in verse 24, God raised Christ up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You see that? Impossible? You, you, you can't kill God. You can't keep God got down. God said he was going to stay in the tomb three days. That's all you're going to keep him there. <laughs> when he wanted to rise, nothing could stop him. So it's the truth about which Paul wrote in Corinthians as well. People, the, the believers in Corinth were, were wavering in their belief about the resurrection. Well, here's what the Bible declares to these wavering Christians in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where's the sting of death? It's gone. It's gone. I remember hearing a story. I love this story. Maybe if you're ever in, in this situation, you could do the same. There's these, uh, these thugs. I'll just call them thugs. These evil men came up to a pastor one day. I believe it was in New York City. And these guys had knives and they said, uh, give us your wallet or your life. Your wallet or your life. We want your money. And this pastor said, sorry guys, you can't threaten me with heaven. You cannot threaten me with heaven. So the thugs, you know, they're, whoa, this guy's weird. Let's get out of here. So they ran away. What a, what a glorious truth that is. A believer, a Christian in Christ cannot be threatened with heaven. <laughs> Go ahead, dude, kill me. You're just going to send me to heaven to a better place. I don't care. <laughs> it's like, what a great truth. Death is swallowed up in victory. There's no longer a sting to death. So what's Jesus doing here? <laughs> Jesus is assuring his 12, and all of the believers, by the way, that the change of death could never permanently overpower them. They could, the change of death could no longer hold them captive. Number six, the sixth characteristic of the church is found in verse 19. We see the church has authority. The church has great authority. In fact, look at verse 19. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is that talking about? Again, there's some misconceptions going on here. Well, first of all, let me give you the Roman Catholic position on this verse. Here's the Roman Catholic position. That Peter and his successors, all the various popes and so forth, going down through the years, have been given authority to receive or exclude individual people from salvation. They have the power to excommunicate and, and so forth, right? Catholicism actually teaches there's no salvation apart from the fellowship of the church. Therefore, exclusion from the church by excommunication means one is severed from the body of Christ. So if, if you actually die in that particular state, uh, in their own theology, they teach that that person goes to hell permanently. Very serious, isn't it? Well, is that what this passage is talking about? Is that what Jesus is talking about? Well, let me give you the Protestant position, okay? Uh, here's the second position. The believers have the authority to announce forgiveness of sins, but here's the key. It's, it's, it's only to those who repent of sin and trust Christ for salvation. Okay? You and I, if, if, if we're believers, we have no authority in and of ourselves. We cannot forgive sin. Jesus forgave sin in the Bible. He had the power to do that because he's God. But only God has the power to forgive sin. All we can, all we can do is acknowledge what God is doing. That's, that's the only authority we have. So what's going on here? Well, you need to keep in mind that the Lord's still addressing Peter as the representatives of the larger group, the twelve. He's telling them that, hey, whatever you bind, and the idea of binding there is whatever you forbid on earth will be forbid in heaven. Whatever you loose, in the, and the idea of loose, by the way, is whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Now, it doesn't mean that that heaven's following what happens on earth. That's not what it means. Uh, and so he told Peter and the twelve, and, and by the extension of us as believers, they had this astounding authority to declare what is forbidden or what is permitted on earth. That's the idea. If you're a believer, you have this, this authority to declare what is forbidden or permitted on earth. Well, how do you know what that is? Well, that, you have to... The only way you're going to know the mind of God is to read the Scriptures. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, this, this same concept, the same thoughts here, we're, we're going to see them in a few weeks from now in Matthew chapter 18. It's almost identical. Uh, and, and so, in, in Matthew 18, he's giving instruction for church discipline. And Jesus said that if a, if a sinning believer refuses to turn from his sin after being counseled privately... And then even after being rebuked by the entire congregation, that the church not only is permitted, but the Bible says the church is permitted and obligated to treat that person as an unbeliever. Interesting enough, it, uh, Jesus says, as a Gentile and a tax gatherer, a tax collector. Whoa. <laughs> if you know anything about the mindset of a Jew, uh, I mean, you don't get any worse than that. A Gentile and a tax gatherer. Whoa. And then he says in Matthew 18, verse 18, this is interesting. He says to the, to the church as a whole, 
He says, truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's saying that to the church, which is very similar to what he's saying here in Matthew 16, isn't he? That's interesting. That's in the context of church discipline. So in other words, a duly constituted body of believers, which we'll call a local church, has the right to, to, to carry out God's authority here on earth. Okay? Uh, we as a church, we have the right to tell an unrepentant brother that he's out of line with God's word. Okay? For example, okay? uh, th- this could come up in a church discipline situation. For example, let's, let's say somebody... Heaven forbid, somebody somebody in in our congregation was working at an abortion clinic. I hope that never happens. Let's say I'm just giving you extreme example here. All right, say someone's working at an abortion clinic, you know, murdering you know thousands of people. We, as a body of believers, have the right to tell that person they're out of line with God's word. They need to repent of their sin. They need to stop that line of work. And do something that's actually pleasing to God. Okay? And uh, that person also has no right to fellowship with God's people if they refuse to repent of their sin. Okay? So Christians have authority because they have the truth of God's authoritative word by which to judge people. Now I know I know where some people go, some people go to Matthew 7 immediately. Doesn't Matthew 7, I've heard this all the time, Matthew 7 says, judge not lest you be judged. Well, read the whole context. It doesn't mean don't judge. All right? In fact, Jesus says just a few verses later in Matthew 7, judge. Okay, So don't, take, don't rip it out of its context, please. All right. So Christians can authoritatively declare what is acceptable to God. And Jesus is also saying, you have the authority to declare what is right and wrong. What is actually forgiven and what is unforgiven. That's what he's saying. Are we clear? So let me just give some application and we can wrap this up, okay? Number one, when believers are in agreement with God's word, they have the authority to judge. But notice notice the way I worded that. It's only when when what you say matches up with the great authority, the ultimate authority of God's Word. Okay? You have no authority except for God and what He's given to you. So God is in agreement with anybody who's doing this sort of thing. And so I'll give you an example. For example, let's say a person declares himself to be an atheist. Okay? Now Romans chapter 1 says there is no such thing as an honest atheist, but let's just carry on with the thought, all right? You know what the term means, right? You know, they don't believe in God. No God, that's what it means, right? So if somebody declares himself to be an atheist, then Jesus is saying that Christians can say to that person with absolute certainty that you are under God's judgment. And if you don't repent, if you don't come to Christ, you'll spend eternity in the lake of fire. Okay, That's what Jesus is telling us here. Okay, that's just one practical example. However, let's, let's look at the other side of here. All right, here's, here's the good news. Uh, it, we can tell people, you know, hey, 
If you come to Christ, you trust Christ, you put all your faith in Christ, and in only in Christ, then you, the Bible says your sins are forgiven, you are a child of God, and then your eternal destiny is heaven. Okay, That's the positive side. Right? By what authority do you get to say that? Not your own, only by God's authority. So the authority of the church lies in the fact that it's actually it, we actually have heaven's word on these sort of matters. Now we don't have heaven's word in all matters. Okay, you know I, I can't go tell you what what color socks you're going to wear tomorrow, <laughs> right? I can't go around telling you exactly you know everything you're supposed to do and everything you're supposed to listen to and and don't go there and you can go here. I I don't have that authority. Okay, the only authority I have is what God's given to me. God doesn't tell us everything. Okay? But the Bible does say in 2 Peter chapter 1 that His Word is sufficient for everything. We have everything we need for life and godliness, it says. So when believers are in agreement with God's Word, then God is in agreement with them. That's the point. All right? Last characteristic of the church, verse 20. The church is a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual reality. In fact, look what Jesus says in verse 20. Uh, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In other words, that he's the Messiah. He's that, that long-awaited one who was talked about in, in the Old Testament. Right? Jesus is warning the twelve here, Hey, don't go around telling everybody who I am. Right? Don't reveal my, my identity to everybody. Now, why would Jesus do that? Hopefully you understand by now the whole context of Matthew. You know, the opposition's building against Jesus, particularly from the religious leaders. So opposition's been building. They're, they're, at this time, they're already plotting how they're going to kill this guy. They want to get rid of Jesus. They're going to kill him. A lot of the people are disillusioned because they had a misunderstanding of the Messiah. They thought the Messiah was going to come and overthrow the Romans, get rid of these evil oppressors. They thought that, that in Christ's first coming, he would, he would raise up this earthly kingdom, and that righteousness and justice and peace would reign. They missed it, though. That's going to happen in Christ's second coming. And so the people's expectations were warped. They were misguided. They wanted to make Christ king in his first coming, but he, that's not why he came in his first coming. In fact, Matthew chapter 1 says it, doesn't it? In verse 21, he's, he came to save his people from their sin, not from the Romans. And so the idea here is Christ, Christ knows, we've read this in Matthew already, it, it's a bit like casting your pearls before swine. Swine's a pig, right? You know that? You don't cast something that's extremely valuable before a pig. Pig doesn't care, right? He doesn't care about pearls and diamonds and gold and silver. Pigs don't care about that stuff, right? They just want your food. Pigs love and and they'll eat almost anything, right? So don't go and cast something valuable because they're just going to squish it in the mud. They don't care. So I think that's one of the reasons why Christ is telling them, hey, don't go reveal my identity to everybody. Yes, I'm the Christ, but don't tell everyone. Well, that brings up a, po- a couple of points I want to talk about. Number one, don't mix your faith with politics. <laughs> Too many Christians do this. 
They mix their faith with politics. They, they think that, they think that the politicians are going to solve the problems of the world. Really? When has that ever happened? <laughs> when are we going to wake up and learn from, from all the past dumb errors that politicians have made? We put their, we put our trust in them. We elect them thinking, oh, now, now the problem's going to get solved, and it doesn't. The problem is, if you mix your faith with politics, we actually run the, the risk of losing our spiritual focus. That's, that's what often happens. And, and we run the risk of losing your, our spiritual power. Yes, Romans 13 says that government is ordained of God. So that MP of yours is only there because God put him there. But we also need to remember that MP is, is an, he's an instrument of God's. Okay, government is not an instrument of the church. Okay, uh, hopefully you believe that church and government should remain separate. I hope. There's been a lot of uh, problems when the, the two try to get together. So don't mix your faith with politics. Last of all, there's no reason to preserve the secret of Christ's identity today. Okay, Jesus was saying this at this time, but don't but don't take this and apply this to your life today. Okay. Sometimes people do weird things like that and say, well, Christ said in verse 20, Matthew 16, verse 20, that I'm not supposed to go around telling everybody that he's the Christ. Hold on. Don't rip it out of its context. There's a context here. <laughs> in fact, you keep reading in Matthew. He's going to tell us, uh, tell the whole world. I died, yes, but I've risen. Okay. All right. So there's a context here. So we've been commanded by Christ to proclaim that He is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. That's not an option. That's a command. All right. This was only for a short little time, up building up to His to His death. So what we see here is that He is the sinner's Savior. And so it's our duty and, and our privilege, by the way, to call people to repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? This, this was just a short little time period. Your duty... And your privilege, your responsibility today is to witness of Christ. Okay, we need to tell people the good news. And I'll remind you, there's no good news without the bad news. The bad news being, if people die without Christ, they go to an eternity in a place called the lake of fire. Or you want to call it hell, but hell's cast in the lake of fire. So, the good news is, if you believe in Christ, He will save you. Whoever comes to Him will be rescued. So let me ask you, my friend, do you believe it? Do you believe in the good news? Do you? If not, today can be the day you can know Christ. For those of you who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you need to tell others.